All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have this time, this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of what you have revealed to us, and to come to understand uh, the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in a more clear way. Father, we recognize that you have revealed these things to us, and that this is important for us to learn and to study and to reflect upon and to apply it within our own thinking and within our own lives. Father, as we look out at the world around us, we realize that there is much confusion, there is uh, much carnality, uh, but there is little hope. And what we offer as a church and as Christians is the truth of your word, and that it must be understood in terms of its grace basis. And Father, we pray that as we study uh, in this chapter that you may help us to understand grace more clearly and precisely And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're back in our study in the flow of Matthew. We have taken a few weeks off from Matthew to look at Psalm 110, which fits within the context of Matthew as our Lord referred to it as he was uh, confounding the Pharisees in his confrontation with them at the end of Matthew uh, chapter 22. And in this particular chapter now in Matthew 23, the Lord is going to really expose the errors and the dangers of religion. Uh, it surprises people at times when you talk to them that you say, well, God doesn't like religion. Well, that is exactly true once you understand what religion is, which we're going to do uh, this morning as a result of our study. In uh, the introduction this morning, I want to to cover about three things. First of all, kind of a reminder of where we are in Matthew and where we're going in the coming chapters in Matthew. And then just to focus on this immediate context, these are the two of the last, are the last two sermons in Matthew of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John, uh, 14 or 13 and following 13 to 16 is the upper room discourse that comes uh, later that is actually the last private uh, teaching that the Lord gave to his disciples but in Matthew the last two are uh, Matthew 23 and then Matthew 24 to 25 and we're going to look at a little summary of why this is significant Jesus harsh condemnation of religion in Matthew 23. It's important to note that the last public sermon that Jesus gave was not a feel-good sermon. It wasn't positive. 
It was extremely negative. It didn't focus on atonement. It didn't focus on forgiveness. It didn't focus on the gospel. It focused on a warning and a condemnation of legalism and of religion and a warning to the disciples and to uh, those who would come in future generations not to follow the examples of the legalism of the Pharisees. Now, what we have seen so far, just in terms of a reminder of the flow of Matthew towards the end, that starting in chapter 21 through the end of chapter 25, this section uh, presents Jesus uh, to Israel as her messianic king and his rejection. Uh, Jesus is presented formally as he enters into uh, enters into Jerusalem as her uh, messianic king in chapters twenty one in chapter twenty one verses twenty one uh, through seventeen. There he's presented to Israel as her messianic king, and there is a tremendous response by. Uh, many of the multitude who are his followers, who have some who came with him from Jericho, we studied that, and the what is called the triumphal entry, it's the uh, public presentation of Jesus as the Messianic King in that part of the chapter. That sets the stage for the confrontation that follows. Now, if we think in terms of chronology, and there's a lot of debate over uh, just exactly what days this occurred, I am of the view that Jesus entered on Sunday, and this was uh, the day after Shabbat. He would not have entered on Shabbat. That would have violated the uh uh, principle of Shabbat, Shabbat and rest, and the people would not have been out. So this was the would have been on Sunday when that took place. But there is a reaction by the religious leaders who are the leaders of the nation at that time, and they reject him. And this is covered in the next few chapters. It's not um, he's rejected by the nation the leaders of the nation, but not all of the people. And that's covered in the remainder of chapter 21 and all of chapter 22. And in that section, it's the next morning after the triumphal entry, which would have been Monday morning, and he cursed the fig tree as he's going to the temple. And the fig tree is a representation, a symbol of Israel. And by cursing it, he is... He is, as it were, giving a visual aid of what is about to transpire through these confrontations with the religious leaders, his announcement of condemnation and rejection of the nation in chapter 23, and a warning of the coming end-time judgments that would come on, on Israel and Matthew 24 and 25, what is known as the Olivet Discourse. So in these two chapters, we see that Jesus, as the Messianic King, is rejected uh, by the nation. And we went through all of the various conf- conflicts that there were. Uh, there's a challenge to his authority in chapter 21, uh, verses 23 to 27, and he responded to that through three parables, showing that this is the essential problem of the religious leadership, and they have rejected him as Messiah and his authority as the Son of God. That conflict then continued in chapter 22, from chapter uh, 22-15, down through the end of the chapter. There were three episodes. Um, 
where the Pharisees and the Herodians have uh, and the Sadducees have come and uh, challenged him directly, and he has confounded them each time. And then he followed that up with a question in verses 41 through 46, where he said, "Who do you think? What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he?" With an, a direct allusion, uh, and then a quote from Psalm 110:1. And we studied that the last few weeks where he shows from Psalm 110.1 that the Messiah is the greater son of David who is, in fact, uh, both human and divine. We studied that the last, the last four weeks. This completely confounds the Pharisees and shuts them down. Let me see, go through. And then Jesus, in chapter 23, rejects the nation and announces eight or seven, there's a textual problem with one of them, uh, woes against the religious leaders. This is announcement uh, against them, and it ends in the last couple of verses with an announcement of, of judgment against Jerusalem. In verses 37 to 39, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Notice the emphasis on God's continuing grace despite the rejection by Israel. God is constantly taking the initiative. And notice the judgment isn't because they were uh, 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 elected to damnation. The rejection is because they were not willing to respond to the grace initiative of God. And then Jesus said, see, your house, that's a reference to the temple, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is what uh, sets up the second part of the introduction that I talked about, and that is the uh, relationship between Matthew 23 and Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, when you look at something like this, it's important to sort of understand the structure. And if we look at Matthew 23, uh, the way, if you, especially if you have a red-letter Bible, now I'm not a big fan of red-letter Bibles, because uh, the red letters are the letter are, are the words that Christ spoke, but that but if all of the Bible is the inspired word of God, and First Corinthians two sixteen says that it's all the mind of Christ, then that gives the impression that those red words, those red letter words, are more important than the rest of the Bible, and all of the Bible is breathed out by God, and it's all important. But one part of the value of the red letter is it shows you where Jesus' long discourses are, where his sermons are in these in these Gospels. And uh, you see that all of chapter 23, uh, with except for the first verse, is in red letter. All except for about uh, two verses in chapter 24 are red letter. All of chapter 25 is in red letters, and then you finally get to more narrative when you get to chapter 26. Chapter 26 and 27 uh, describe the 
uh, arrest of Jesus and his trials and then his crucifixion in chapter 27 and his burial in the tomb and then his resurrection in chapter 28. So that is where we are headed. But when we look at chapter 23 and trying to fit that within the context, what we need to understand is that there is a distinction in time and place between chapter 23 and chapters 24 and 25, and that's significant. Chapter 23 takes place immediately following the confrontation with the religious leaders. They, there were the three parables that were against the uh, religious leaders, and then the, uh, the three confrontations that occurred in chapter uh, 22 from verse 15 down through uh, verse 40, and then Jesus shuts them down with his argument for Psalm 110. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 23, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples. So he is primarily talking to his his own people, his disciples, and the multitude that's there, but the uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees are within earshot as he announces his rejection of them and announces these these woes against them. So chapter 23 belongs as the conclusion to what we've seen in the section that began in verse 21. There is a shift in time because it takes a little while to walk from the temple down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley and up the other side onto the Mount of Olives, which is what takes place. The beginning of chapter 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came uh, came up to show him uh, the buildings of the temple. And, we, and then in verse 3 it says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. So it's a different location. Uh, there are, if you read all of the scholarly commentaries, you will see a lot of argument to try to connect these two. And uh, as I was thinking about this passage uh, and what Jesus' refutation of these false false teachers, uh, it, it reminded me a lot of what's going on in seminaries today and in evangelicalism today. There is a lot of false teaching. Uh, what is needed in a seminary is the ability to teach critical thinking skills from a sound theological perspective. And that is what we're trying to do with Chafer Seminary, and I don't think that's going to be accomplished until we get a full-time president and four or five full-time presidents, to, I mean full-time faculty members, to really pull it together. Uh, that takes time to develop. It took Dallas Seminary uh, from the time that it was founded in 1923. It really was not until the 50s, early 50s, that, that things really gelled uh, came together for the seminary. It takes time to, to develop and to, to build these things. But what you have today is, is an environment where uh, liberal ideas have been gradually filtering into evangelical seminaries for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And you can think uh, probably in your mind of two or three uh, evangelical conservative dispensational seminaries that have been around for the last uh, 60, 70, 80 years, and they are, sad to say, no longer the bulwarks of biblical truth. Um, we, we're going to need to address the question, what makes a false teacher a false teacher? 
And I think one thing that makes a false teacher has to do with their understanding of authority, the understanding of authority of Scripture. This is why this coming March, the focus at the Chafer Conference is going to be on the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word, because uh, this is foundational. If the Word of God is not inerrant and infallible, then God is not speaking with a solid voice of authority. Uh, if it's not infallible and inerrant, then what parts are infallible and inerrant and what parts are not? Once you ask that question, then you have to uh, come up with some kind of criterion to make that distinction. And once you do that, then anything can mean anything. One person says, this is God's word. Another person says, this is God's word. And how do you know? God is no longer speaking uh, with authority through every part of his scripture, every jot and tittle, as, as Jesus said. And so what happens is you don't just see things go along good, and then one day they turn a corner and everything is bad. It takes a long, gradual process. And as a student of church history, this is what happened between 1850 and 1930, a period of, of 80 years before you, you saw the complete fall of all of the denominations, the mainline denominations, to liberalism. And it slowly creeps in, and they, one of the first areas of attack is on the authority of Scripture and on the infallibility of Scripture. And I just thought I'd take this as an example. Here you have uh, a, something that appears very simple to people, and the average person, you say, well, you look at this and you say, well, I can see where they would have this argument or that argument and that these could, could go together because actually if you look at the text, it seems to flow. I've pointed out some, some reasons why they, they should be disconnected. But as I was reading through uh, a number of commentaries and the majority of them were trying to connect these two together, uh, one flowing out of the other while there is a, a, a broad uh, uh, connection. Uh, the writer Matthew and Jesus, both Jesus by his actions of, of movement and Matthew by emphasizing the distinction in place show that they are not, uh, not re- related. There is a clear distinction here. And, um, and so you might say, well, why are you making this point? Why is this so important? Well, as you look at this, what you have to have as as a pastor or any student of the Word is the ability to think critically and understand that when you're reading commentaries, that these guys are not just popping up out of a vacuum. They've got backgrounds. Uh, one of the things I try to uh, teach my, the men that I uh, work with on Friday mornings via an online pastors group is you have to know uh, about the, these authors of these commentaries. What's their background? What's their denominational background? What were their influences on their life? Even even people we know and we trust, whether it's somebody like Charlie Clough, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Andy Woods, uh, George Meisinger, what are their backgrounds? Who who? What pastors? What teachers? What uh, educators? Seminary professors influ- influenced them? And as I began to um, mentally organize these commentaries, I realized that, that the vast number of those who were taking a position related to how these, how these related were also men who were weak on inerrancy. Now, these, we've studied this in the past. 
that there are those who will affirm inerrancy in their doctrinal statement, but then the way they treat the differences between the gospel passages and other things that Jesus says, they're in effect denying inerrancy. So that one of the foremost evangelical theologians and one who has written a commentary on Matthew and one who has... um, as a professor at a uh, at an evangelical seminary, made the comment related to the evangelical theological society that if all of the men um, who are members, all of the members of ETS, if the, who have to affirm sign a doctrinal statement that they believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that if they were forced to interpret that doctrinal statement, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, in light of the Chicago statement of of uh, inerrancy of Scripture, then ninety over ninety percent of them couldn't do it. Now that's important because the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy was worked out by over three hundred theologians at the end toward the end of the nineteen seventies during nineteen seventy seven nineteen seventy eight. And they represented a number of different uh, theological traditions. They were uh, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopals. They were conservatives, uh, conservatives all. Some were dispensational, some were covenant. But they came together in agreement uh, to this statement. And it is an extremely precise statement uh, going through the scripture, explaining and also explaining what the doctrine says, and also countering a number of different arguments. And in 2004, the Evangelical Theological Society officially said that is the interpretation of their doctrinal statement of their line on the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. So what this shows is you've got a high level of of, uh, of a lack of integrity among a lot of seminary professors today at a number of different institutions who are really waffling. So, so it comes to, uh, it comes to credibility and it comes to understand uh, the ability to have critical thinking skills, why we have to have a, a solid seminary. But it's also, relates to this whole idea of false teaching because the erosion of truth is not something that happens overnight. It takes, uh, it takes decades for this to take place, and a lot of times people are completely unaware of what is happening until one day they wake up and see, well, that's not exactly what I was taught. Um, that's how it developed with the Pharisees. It, they, they didn't come to the positions they held at the time of Jesus overnight. It took two or three hundred years, and we'll look at that as we go through this. But it's important to understand these are saying, and you have to have a pastor who's educated enough to be able to think critically about these issues. And one of the things I've seen with, uh, with pastors, uh, you have been, uh, listening to me and others who are very, very solid in teaching the word for uh, for many years in your uh, in your Christian life, uh, but I find also, and just because somebody's been to seminary doesn't mean they have the critical thinking skills. 
Trust me, there are a lot of people who've gone through seminary and have not developed these kinds of critical thinking skills. And I've also seen a lot of people who come out of solid churches, and they go, and all of a sudden they go to seminary. And like, like I was saying, you've listened to me and others like me for most of your Christian life. But if you were to go off to seminary, you would start hearing a lot of professors who had a doctorate, a double doctorate. They've been to uh, Dallas or they've been to uh, um, one of the other schools, uh, evangelical schools, gotten a, a doctorate there, and then they've gone someplace else in Europe or uh, in the Northeast or somewhere and gotten a second doctorate. And uh, they know Greek and they know Hebrew and I've seen so many men over the years go, and within a year or two, they've, they've completely changed their understanding of the Bible because they get their eyes on a person. And what they've happened is they've said they put their eyes on me, they put their eyes on somebody else, and then they go to a seminary and they hear uh, others who are educated, and they either shipwreck their faith. I can't tell you how many people I've seen do that, that they hear other opinions and they just they crash and burn. They can't handle the fact that there are different views by different people, and they can't, they don't have the critical thinking skills to say, okay, this person says X, Y, and Z, this person says uh, W, X, Y, what are the difference? How can I outline their positions so that I can truly understand who has the more biblical argument and who doesn't, and be able to get past all the smoke screens of um, uh, of what is being put out there. Uh, this last week I was having a discussion with a pastor I know, I've known for about uh, 40, 40 years. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot of things. And we were disagreeing over something. And I said, well, how did you come to that con- conclusion? He said, I read my Bible. I said, that's what Joseph Smith said. I've read my Bible too. What's your argument? We've got to break this thing down into every, every component. Now, the reason I'm going through this is because we've reached the same kind of situation in modern evangelicalism that Jesus was facing with the Pharisees. We have a religious establishment that in many cases has divorced itself from grace. They are expressing as their own uh, uh, opinions, uh, they're expressing their own opinions as if they are have the authority of the Word of God, uh, and they don't. And they are leading people astray. They are false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. This is what uh, Paul warned the Ephesian elders about uh, in Acts uh, in Acts chapter 19. He says that there are going to be those who come from within you, from your midst, who are uh, false teachers and will lead people astray. And the only way that you can come to understand the truth or be watchful for error is to really understand the truth. And But that's not a guarantee because I know a lot of people understand the truth, but they just can't think critically. So they have to rely on somebody who has some critical thinking skills and really understands what's going on. And uh, and that's 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 important. This last week, as most of you know, we, um, we the last couple of days actually went to Albuquerque to participate in a very short uh, prophecy conference. And the other speakers were Charlie Clough and Andy Woods. 
and uh, I've known most of these men. It's really interesting. We represent three generations. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, uh, Paul says to Timothy, he says, he talks about the fact that uh, I committed to you this word of truth. So that's two generations, Paul and Timothy. And uh, you commit this to faithful men also. Those faithful men, that's a third generation, that will be able to teach others also. That's a fourth generation. And we went to this conference, and uh, Charlie Clough was, was, was there, and I first heard Charlie 50 years ago. My, how time flies when you're having fun. Char- Charlie just wasn't even out of seminary yet. He was doing his pastoral internship here in Houston, and I, uh, that's when I first heard him. And uh, Charlie Clough gave me a love for the Old Testament. As he became pastor of Lubbock Bible Church and taught the Old Testament, I thought, I've never heard anybody who really understood and put it together like that. And that gave me a desire to really know the Old Testament. He did such a fabulous job. Um, gave me that hunger for it. So there was there was that. And then uh, in the late, um, uh, late 90s or mid-90s, uh, a young... Uh, lawyer in Southern California uh, met George Meisinger, and uh, George uh, gave him a, a desire to know the scriptures, and so Andy Woods then uh, enrolled in Chafer Seminary, took his first year at Chafer Seminary. I met him a couple of years later, right after he moved to Dallas to finish his degree there, and uh, he would uh, he was mentored by Charlie, by me, by Tommy Ice, by a number of others. And so you see this progression. And so the three of us were together, and we've got men in uh, Chafer Seminary who are coming up as a fourth generation. And this is this is this is what is needed. But it's interesting when I get together with these guys, and each one of us knows different things that are going on in our broader broader world and i learned some things this this weekend about what is happening among uh many of our seminaries that 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 outside of chafer and and tyndale i can't recommend any other seminary anymore because they have slid into false teaching in ways you can't imagine and i'm not going to talk about them in the pulpit but but it's just horrendous and this is what Jesus is warning against in this in this particular chapter. And the problem that we have is what Jesus gets to in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, as he uh, concludes this particular, or the first part of this, uh, this uh, condemnation of the Pharisees. Now, if you are a product of, of our culture, if you're, especially if you're younger, if you're a millennial, this doesn't sit well with you because everything's supposed to be positive and build a good self-image. And Jesus is about as harsh as he could possibly be in his discussion of the religious leaders. And this is his last public message. Uh, this isn't a feel-good message. It's not a motivational message. It's not an evangelism message. It's a warning that there are going to be people who come up in your midst who are going to lead you astray, and they're motivated by arrogance, and they're motivated motivated by a power lust, and they're motivated uh, by a desire to control people, and they are motivated by gaining their own recognition and their own fame. And they are focused on exalting themselves. And so as we look at the first 
part of this chapter, when we come to the last verse, it gives us the sort of the unifying theme that Jesus is focused on in this condemnation. And he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He is emphasizing the fact that the core problem with legalism, the core problem with false teachers, is arrogance. It is a, an arrogance is always a rejection of divine authority and the assertion of one's own personal authority. Uh, Peter learned the lesson well as he was sitting there, and in his um, um, in in First Peter chapter five. I skip over here. First Peter chapter five. I'm having trouble getting through the through the slide to what I want. We finish the introduction. Is he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Peter talks, as we've seen on Thursday night, he's very focused on understanding submission. Submission is related to um, to authority orientation and to humility. That's the foundation for it. And it's interesting, the word for submission is the word hupotasso in the Greek, and the, the root verb there is tasso. And submission is this idea to put yourself under the authority of someone else. And he says you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for. And then he is going to quote uh, from uh, Proverbs and from Psalms. He's going to put this together. And he says, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that word for resist is the word antitasso. Hupatasso is to submit, antitasso, so there's a play on words there to make the point, means not just to resist, but it is used in extra-biblical literature to indicate the massing of troops to establish a battle line to fight against the enemy. So it's this idea of going to war that God is going to go to war against the arrogant. God does not put up with the arrogant, and he's going to be hostile to the arrogant. And so Peter concludes, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. James, who is the uh, half-brother of our Lord's humanity, says, uh, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, that is, God says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. And so the emphasis that we see here is that we have to start with humility. But it's real easy for leaders, for pastors, for other spiritual leaders to succumb to arrogance. Arrogance is the greatest enemy uh, of anyone who is in uh, the pastoral ministry or a theological professor because uh, we often uh, believe our press reports. You know, we go, we talk, we teach, people say how wonderful we are, and we think that they're, they're actually right. And one of the things a young pastor has to learn right away is you never believe what anybody tells you after class unless they tell you that was a rotten sermon. Then they're probably right. But in 30 years of ministry, nobody's ever quite said that, so that's not the problem. Uh, the problem is arrogance, and and what we see in 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 ministry that's been a problem. It's a problem with the Pharisees is people who are creating their own power base 
their own fiefdoms. And, and, and often people who are in congregations unwittingly feed that. And uh, they talk about the fact that, um, that, that well, my pastor fill in the blank, um, this is what, what he teaches, and, it's the, and there's, there's a fine line between having a congregation that has good esprit de corps and is proud of their pastor. There's, a, there's something that should be there. I mean, that, that's good for any congregation. But you can cross the line, and all of a sudden, whatever that pastor says takes on an authority that is uh, above the Scripture almost and takes control uh, over the Scripture. And I can name you a, a dozen examples of this as, as of pastors around the country and many more. There are some that are, are much more egregious than others. Uh, some, it just happens, uh, happens unwittingly. Uh, there's a pastor in Southern California who has a worldwide ministry. He's a strong advocate of lordship salvation. And uh, he's had a huge role in... Uh, in evangelism and in establishing some schools and seminaries across uh, the former Soviet Union. And uh, one of my colleagues on the Chafer board, who used to be on the mission field with Jim Myers, uh, Mark Musser, has been over there, and the opposition, the, the, the Russian Baptist denomination is very... Uh, uh, very much focused on expanding the ministry of the Southern California pastor, and so so Mark was there with one of our graduates from uh, from the Word of God Institute. was It was over in uh, in far eastern Russia, and they were teaching through through Romans with the DM two material and teaching a free grace gospel. But they this this student that was there has virtually been brought up on heresy charges by the um, by the uh, leader of the Baptist church there. And his ultimate authority isn't the Bible. Of course, that's what he says. That's what we all say. Well, I read the Bible, like my friend said the other day. Well, I just got that from reading the Bible. That's such a supercilious argument. And, and what are they doing? They're saying, well, this isn't what Pastor so-and-so teaches. That becomes the ultimate authority. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees at the time of Jesus. And if you read the Mishnah, they'll pose a question, well, what do we do in this situation? They'll say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Shammai says this, and nobody's going to the text of Scripture. And we live in a world today where a lot of times Christians get together and they talk, and they'll say, well, John MacArthur says this, and Charles Swindoll says this, and and uh, so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this. Well, what does the Bible say? We've got to get back to the Bible, and we can't uh, either as pastors or as congregants uh, elevate the pastor above his station. I mean, we all make mistakes. I mean, every pastor I have I have focused on and and learned under has gone through a process of spiritual growth and bib and and knowledge and theological growth as they have come to understand the scriptures better and better. I think that the 10 minutes before Jesus takes me home, I will have a better handle on what the scripture says than I had when I started. Don't you think that makes sense? And I will teach more accurately, I hope, at that time than I do at the beginning. I think the pastorate is one of those few uh, professions you can go into, maybe doctors are the same way, where you're you're really better when you're in your 70s and 80s, unless you have dementia, 
than you were when you were in your 30s and 40s. Because in your 30s and 40s, you haven't had enough time in grade. Now, I wouldn't have believed that when I was 30 or 40. But it's true. You look, I look back in how much I have learned and grown in the Scripture in the last 20 years compared to the previous 20 years, and it's amazing. It's just the opportunity to study. So every pastor goes through growth, but the pastor, the rabbi, at the time of Jesus, wasn't the final authority. This is the problem that, that we see. Now, what Jesus is condemning here is religion. And so I want to look at a few things and just summarize some basic principles about what the Scripture says about religion. First of all, God abhors religion. God hates religion. He despises religion because religion is a product of human arrogance. It is not what God is seeking in his word. And this often comes as a surprise to, to many people. It's a great conversation starter. If you want, to imp, you want to talk to somebody, you start talking about going to church, they say, well, I'm not religious. And you say, well, I'm not either, neither is God. What? God's not religious? No, God is not religious. God is, uh, God is focusing on a relationship. We have to understand that it is the way of the world system to think that man on his own always has the right idea about spirituality. I'm using that in a very broad, broad sense. Or the right idea about how to be in touch with whatever the eternal is. But human viewpoint thinks more highly of itself than it ought to think. It thinks that it has a handle on truth. And they emphasize things such as sincerity, uh, devotion, having certain kinds of attitudes, and they label that as being spiritual or being religious, and that somehow that, that impresses God. You see, in, in, in human viewpoint, in our own arrogance... What we really want when we talk about so many things is we just want validation and approval. And we think that if we are sincere about what we're doing, if we truly, genuinely believe it, then somehow that's going to impress God. And God is going to validate us by letting us come to heaven. And uh, one of the ideas that often comes out of many religions is the idea that all roads lead to God. I think there's only two uh, beliefs that are exclusive. Christianity, which focuses on a relation, not a religion. But then there's Islam, which focuses, which is a religion. And if you don't submit to Allah, then you're not going anywhere. You're just going to come under Allah's condemnation. So those are both exclusive. And this drives others, unbelievers, crazy. But we have these statements in Scripture. One you hear me quote all the time on Sunday morning. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Now, that is a pretty arrogant statement unless it's true. Jesus is claiming exclusivity, that he's the only way that anyone can have a relationship with God. And if you're looking at this from purely human viewpoint standard, you think, wow, this guy's got to be a real nut job. Well, that's one of the options. Either Jesus is crazy, uh, but that doesn't seem to fit the scenario of what we know of Jesus' life, or he's lying. 
And that doesn't fit the scenario of Jesus' life either. So if Jesus isn't crazy and he's not lying, then maybe he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, then he's talking about that he is the only way. And John eleven twenty five, he says this uh, similar thing. He says, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And, and these verses emphasize that the way to have a relationship with God is simply through faith in Christ. It's not by, by works. Now, a third verse that we can go to is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. And Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's a pretty exclusive statement. Unless you're born again. Well, how do you get born again? By believing in me. Once again, it's showing that exclusivity. So uh, in the second point, religion is man doing works, and God blesses them. But in Christianity, God does all of the work, and man receives it. So the first point, I said God hates religion because religion thinks everything's going to ultimately work out and they're going to get, get to be with God. And the second point is that religion is man doing something, uh, whether it's uh, various activities, whether it's moral obedience, whatever, whatever it may be, certain ritual. It's man goes through these, the, jumps through these hoops, checks off these marks, and then God blesses him. Whereas Christianity says that God does all of the work and man simply receives it. The way, the thing I'm emphasizing here is that, that in religion, God is the ultimate validator of whatever human beings do. There's no real absolute, consistent, absolute standard of, of universal righteousness. So as long as we are uh, sincere, then God validates us because he loves us so much. And the problem you have with this view is that it's always, with most religion, it has a very high view of man and a very low view of sin. A high view of man because they think that man just has to do a little bit more and God's going to pat him on the back. And it's a low view of sin because it doesn't ex- understand the concept that man is spiritually dead and incapable of doing anything, anything good. That only Christianity has a way of dealing with man's sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told that for he, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Old Testament Judaism, in contrast to Pharisaism, understood that works were not uh, were not valid. Um, we have passages like Isaiah um, sixty four six, but we are all an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Isaiah the prophet understood that all of our good deeds, all our tzedakah, all the righteousness is as filthy rags. But the solution was given in Isaiah 53, 10, and 11. Talking about the suffering servant, Isaiah wrote, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. When he made his soul an offering from sin, he shall see his seed. So it's talking about that the soul of the Messiah would be an offering for sin. 
And in verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That's the Christian doctrine of propitiation, the idea that God's justice and righteousness were satisfied by the death of the Messiah. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. It's not that they are inherently good because their works are are filthy rags, but that because of the death of the Messiah, they will be they will be justified. Why? Because he shall bear their iniquities. In the Old Testament, the focus wasn't on the ritual; it was focused on the reality that the ritual was supposed to represent, which was mercy and grace. Micah six eight says, "He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you." Not all these details and all these regulations the Pharisees developed, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And in context, that ultimately is grounded on the fact that you have trusted in God and in his promise of a provision of the Messiah in the Old Testament so that now you can walk before God. Third thing about religion is that Christianity is a relationship with God, but religion is a relationship with ritual or procedures or details or regulations and minutia. God told the Jews in the Mosaic Law that they were not to work on the Sabbath. They were not to do normal work on the Sabbath, but that they were to uh, to rest in God. The Pharisees came along, and at first they developed 28 principles. Good people would say, understandably, what do you mean don't work? What, what, what should I not do? So they came up with 28 things that you couldn't do. And, of course, as you started to look at those, you would say, well, what about this first one? Can I? What about this? What about that? What about this other thing? And pretty soon each one of those 28 had a 100 different uh, stipulations and regulations related to it until it became impossible to figure out what you could or, or, or you couldn't do. So that their focus was on controlling people through the, the minutia of all of these all of these regulations, whereas the, the original commandment was very general and it wasn't uh, didn't go in spell out every single detail, leaving that up to the individual. But Christianity is not a relationship with regulations. It's a relationship with God. And we see this emphasized numerous places. For example, in Genesis 5.24, talks about Enoch. And Enoch walked with God. That's a term for relationship. We also have uh, several references. In, for example, Isaiah 41.8, that talks about Abraham as God's friend. Also, Second Chronicles 20, verse 7 uh, refers to Abraham as God's friend forever. And James 2.23 that says he was called the friend of God. Being a friend is a relationship. Now, I think we have a problem that we're going to have to deal with in our culture. We're seeing so many relational breakdowns today because in younger generations that have grown up with all their tech devices and their cell phones and everything else, and you've all seen this, you go out to eat at a restaurant and you see a couple out on a date and they're both looking at their cell phones and spend, they're not talking to each other. They're just spending all their time with their cell phone. 
we're going to see a massive problem with the millennial generation and younger when they get older because they didn't grow up learning how to have a relationship. Spiritually, that's going to have implications because if you don't learn how to have a relationship with other human beings except through a device, how are you going to learn to have a relationship with God? You don't know how to relate. You don't know how to relate to another person. We're going to have, that's going to be a major aspect of ministry for Christians as we see these uh, millennials come to Christ and talk about a relationship. They don't know what, really what that means. That's going to be a, a major issue. So Christianity is a relationship with God, not with regulations. And then fourth, religion appeals to man's sin nature. Religion appeals to man's sin nature. It builds authorities in human beings that where that authority should go to God. That's what we're going to see in this in this chapter. Uh, it appeals to approbation lust. People want to be approved by others. They want to get all those positive strokes, and they're thinking they're getting these positive strokes from God. It appeals to power lust. Uh, they want to have power and control over people. In the ancient world, we had fertility religions that emphasized sexual lust. Uh, today we have it, but it's expressed in other ways. You have... Um, uh, re- religions that appeal to pleasure lust, all kinds of different things, that in- intellectual lust, these uh, cerebral cults that have developed over uh, mind control and other things like that. And then the last point in terms of this introduction is that religion is Satan's greatest tool to distract people from God. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15, we're warned about false apostles and false teachers. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Nobody claims to be an enemy of Christ. They all claim to be a friend of Christ. They are representing Christ. Like my friend the other day who said, well, I got this from reading the Bible. I said, well, I read the Bible too. I know Greek and Hebrew just as well as you do. Uh, don't give me this kind of supercilious argument. Let's you know, break it down and, and get to the details of, of, of your understanding. Um, so you have, but he's not a false teacher. Uh, you have false teachers who come along. They all claim biblical authority. And and then Paul goes on to say, And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan's going to look like a good guy. He's not going to look like a bad guy. He's not going to come out like on Halloween with horns and red skin and a tail and, and look like the devil. He's going to look like a good guy. Therefore, it is no great thing, Paul goes on to say, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. See, this is the problem that you've got with the Pharisees. They are ministers of Satan. They are moral degenerates. They are disciples of the devil. They are promoting religion but not a relationship with God. And that is why Jesus condemns them. And anyone who says, I can tell you how to get to heaven... And what they tell you to do will take you straight to the lake of fire ought to be strongly and roundly condemned because that kind of thinking, it destroys people. And that's what Jesus is getting at, that the the shepherds of Israel have turned their flocks that God has given them over to wolves and it is destroying the nation. And this is why he announces, announces judgment. So next time we'll come back, we'll start into the text. 
looking at his uh, what he says, condemnation, there are a lot of things that need to be understood in this chapter because if you don't understand Pharisaism and the culture at the time, it's real easy, and people do, it's real easy to take some of these statements completely out of context and misapply them. So we'll get into that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. And Father, we're so grateful that we have a relationship with you and that we can walk with you and that that, uh, God the Holy Spirit indwells us and the Lord Jesus Christ indwells us and you indwell us. And we have this rich relationship and we study your word not as an end in itself, but as a, as a way to learn about who you are so that our relationship with you will deepen and strengthen and it will be based on truth and not on error. Father, above all, we pray that if anyone's listening and they, they wonder just how they can have a relationship with you, that, that really is only the end result. The issue is that we have to trust in Jesus. Again and again in the scriptures, the issue is just to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said uh, uh, that to, to Martha, after he said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He said, do you believe this? Uh, the issue is belief. It's not on ritual. It's not on following a set gui- uh, guidelines and regulations. It is on trusting in Jesus Christ and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you'd make the gospel clear to those who've listened and that they would respond in faith. And for those of us who are believers, that we would recognize it's very easy for us at times to slip into forms of legalism and religiosity uh, as we go forward in our own Christian Christian lives, and we need to be brought back to the fact that we need to be walking with you in a relationship on a day-by-day basis. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.